everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everyone, it's Brandon back with another Turbo. Topic today, why do we prone patients? Why do we take a patient who's suffering from severe ARDS, usually on the ventilator, and flip them over so they're prone on their bellies. Ordinarily, we take care of patients on their backs. It's convenient. It is, I suppose, comfortable for them. So this is a sort of unergonomic or unusual thing to do. But there's a good reason for it. And I think investigating why we do it sheds a lot of light on how we do it, when we should do it, when we should not do it. Whereas just saying, uh, you know, we do it when there's certain indications leaves us operating kind of a black box. So the best reason to prone patients, probably the most defensible one, is just because we have evidence that it improves their outcome. So the best data was the PROSEVA trial, P-R-O-S-E-V-A, which randomized patients to being prone or not if they had severe ARDS, the PF ratio of less than 150, and some other reasonable criteria. And when they were prone relatively early, they ended up with lower mortality. So, you know, we can always hypothesize on the mechanisms for our uh, benefit from our interventions, but the best reason to do them is because we know that it helps them, even if we don't understand why. So a purely empiric evidence-based approach would be to say that Procevis said we should, so we should. Now, that would also mean that you should have a very good reason for not doing it, in patients who fall in to those criteria. And this gets at what I think is the limitation or the challenge to a lot of critical care research recently, which is that certainly some patients are not going to uh, fall into the buckets that our studies investigated. But how do you know who? Certainly there are going to be some patients who meet those criteria who will be harmed or at least not benefit from proning, and and probably patients who don't fall into that category who would benefit, but it's hard to know who those patients are. So to explore that, let's look at the reasons why proning might work. Now, the most common argument you will hear, and I think it is both because there is probably some truth to it, uh, but honestly also because it illustrates physiology in a way that we find satisfying (laughs) Uh, and it makes kind of mechanistic and scientific sense to us. Um, and that can be a bit of a bias, of course. That doesn't mean that it is true. But the argument you'll hear is that it improves VQ matching. So in a supine patient lying on their back, generally the best ventilated lung that is getting the most air particularly in a disease state like ARDS where there's a lot of shunt. There is a lot of stuff in the air spaces, pus, fluid, even blood, something getting in the way, preventing you from ventilating that lung. Um, The worst of that shunt is often dependent. So it's toward the, the posterior lung, if you're lying on your back, that's kind of where it tends to settle. And if you get a CT scan of the chest in these patients, Not always. It does depend on their particular phenotype. But many times, their worst disease, the most fluid in consolidation, is towards the back. The problem is that that is the reverse of where the blood flow tends to be. And by reverse, I mean also the best perfused lung 
tends to be dependent. And in the case of a supine patient, that means posterior. In other words, the least ventilated lung is also the best perfused. Or conversely, the best ventilated lung, which is anterior towards the chest, is the worst perfused. You have the least blood flow going to the alveoli that can actually participate in gas exchange. Now, obviously, our ultimate goal is to treat that airspace disease. But in the meantime, if we can optimize that VQ matching and essentially redirect more blood away from the diseased lung towards the good lung, then we can maybe exchange gas better. So what if we just turned the patient over? Now, the best perfused lung will again be dependent, but that now means towards the chest because, and this is a simplification, but at least to some extent, perfusion follows gravity. At least that's an easy way to think about it. Lower down, more blood. Uh, but the diseased airspaces are still in the posterior. So now you've matched it up. The best ventilated lung towards the chest, which is now down, is where the most blood flow is. At least for now. Now those consolidations will usually start to redistribute to follow gravity as well. They will percolate down through the airways and end up towards the chest again. And that is probably why we don't leave the patient prone. We flip them back and forth. In the older data, you prone them for short amounts of time in Proceva. And by and large, what we are doing now is leaving them prone for longer, but it's still not forever. And there's probably other reasons too. Prone forever causes other complications. Uh, but from this argument, you would say that it's because you got to keep flipping back and forth so you can keep the diseased lung opposite from the perfusion, if that makes sense. Now, there are a number of physiological arguments to get into this pro and con and other subtleties, but that's the general idea. And if that's the mindset you take, it will inform how you prone. For example, if you get that CT scan and the consolidations are heavily favoring the dependent regions, maybe that's a patient who will benefit more from proning because you do have a lot of more open, healthy lung anteriorly, and that's what you can perfuse if you were to flip them. You are also implicitly saying that the reason you're proning is to better oxygenate a patient, and therefore the reason you would do it would be if you otherwise are having a hard time oxygenating them. That may seem obvious, but we'll get into that. Now, another argument for proning, and this is uh, kind of a different mindset, would be to say that Maybe proning helps oxygenation, maybe not, but the reason we're doing it really is because it helps normalize or distribute or balance out stress on the lung. We know that injury to the lung and even ongoing injury due to our efforts at ventilation is an important driver of disease in ARDS. And part of the issue here is that stress and strain and energy delivered to the lung is not equal throughout the lung. We look at things like tidal volumes, plateau pressures, driving pressures, whatever you like to follow, and imagine that it describes the entire lung as a unit, but the lung is not a unit. The lung is a bazillion little lung units, however granular you want to look at it, down to individual alveoli. And depending on how they are diseased or less diseased, 
they're going to have a different compliance, a different willingness to expand, a different amount of force and energy required to inflate them. And the problem is not just that the overall lung has a problem with its compliance, it's that that compliance is not evenly distributed. If I give you a 500cc tidal volume breath and it were to evenly distribute throughout each unit of both lungs evenly in a fixed amount of time, then I would be able to understand what's happening in that lung by just looking at that average volume or the pressure we measure at the head of the ventilator. But if actually that volume is being delivered to, let's say, half of your lung, then what we've really done is overinflated that lung. And that's the reason that we use smaller tidal volumes, for instance. We assume that there is a smaller working area of lung here. But if we were able to distribute the force on the lung so that it is even throughout, then even if that overall force was greater, it would reduce the localized effects of that so that we're not creating so much strain in individual areas. What we'll see often is what's called pendelift flow, which is flow from one portion of the lung to the other during the breath. And this happens when you have this heterogeneous distribution of disease. At first, the breath may inflate part of the lung, and then it shifts to the other portions of the lung to distribute. And that may sound just fine, but the problem is that that implies that for a period of time, all of the breath was in a smaller part of the lung, and then it was in another part of the lung. It's like you had overinflated those portions. But what if we could avoid that? What if we could ensure that the entire lung is inflating more evenly and that there are no localized areas of stress? Well, the only way to do that would be to normalize or distribute the compliance. Now, we talk about compliance like a better compliance, meaning a higher compliance, a more compliant lung is better. And that's probably true in the sense that it is a marker of having less disease. But a worse compliance would be better as long as it were evenly distributed. If you have part of the lung that's very compliant and part of the lung that's very non-compliant, it means that you're going to, it's going to be impossible to evenly inflate that lung, and you're going to end up overinflating the more compliant lung before you inflate the less compliant lung, if, if you ever do. So how do we achieve that? One of the problems here is that even in normal physiology, our thorax does not evenly distribute uh, its compliance. If you're lying there in bed, even without ARDS, you have a more compliant chest anteriorly. Your ribs expand, your diaphragm drops, and in those kind of uh, more frontal portions of your chest, it's easier to expand your lungs, whereas posteriorly, it's kind of braced, right? You have immobile bony structures like the spine, like the scapula, and in a supine patient, the bed itself. Those are all bracing the back, preventing it from expanding. And therefore, if you deliver a breath, it's going to more easily expand the chest anteriorly and not so much posteriorly. So if we were to flip that patient and put them on their stomach, what we've done now is brace their anterior chest against the bed. It's like you, you splinted it, you piled something on top of it, and you made it stiffer. So now you have a stiffer 
anterior thorax because it's against the bed, and you still have stiffness posteriorly because of those bony structures. And you've made the entire chest more evenly stiff because of those extra pulmonary uh, structures. And therefore, if you look at the compliance of that chest, you may find that overall it's worse. You've decreased it, but it is more evenly compliant. Therefore, if you deliver pressure and force into that lung, it is likely to more evenly distribute, more evenly recruit alveoli, and more evenly apply pressure and energy to them. And therefore, regardless of what sorts of measurements you're getting when you average everything at the ventilator level, on an individual lung unit level, you may be applying less force and being more lung protective. For this to make sense, you do have to look at the lung not just as one big blob, which is you know what we tend to do when we look at the ventilator, because that's what the ventilator does. It inflates one big blob. But it's not that. It's like a population. It's all these little alveoli doing different things. And lung injury doesn't happen en masse. It's happening at individual places. And where is that? It tends to be not just in the area of most disease consolidated lung, but actually at the margins between shunted consolidated alveoli and healthy open ones. You know, they all share walls. They all connect. It's all one big family. And the most strain is being applied at those margins between the area that's not inflating and the area that is. So we want to try to balance that out. I would rather have a sicker lung almost that is completely evenly sick than one that's very patchy and heterogeneous. All right, any other reasons to prone? Yeah, I mean, there are a hodgepodge of reasons that in most people's thinking are uh, less important, but, you know, certainly may be relevant. Uh, One potentially important one is clearance of secretions. You know, we know these patients have a lot of stuff in their lung, and to, you know, really affect good pulmonary toilet and clean them out, it would help if it drained better, and lying on your stomach actually helps with this. Your airway, your trachea, when you're lying on your back, actually tilts a little bit uh, anteriorly towards your face. And if you flip, then it's the other way. It's actually a little bit downsloping. And you often will see an increase in secretions just kind of coming out of these patients' mouths and airways when you turn them over. And probably that is helpful. And any number of other reasons that may contribute. Even patient-specific ones like, you know, your patient's been in bed for a week paralyzed and they're developing decubitus wounds. If you can get pressure off those, it may help healing and so on. So how do you bring this to the bedside? Well, I think some of it depends on your philosophy. If you're in the mindset that you prone for oxygenation, then these other arguments about heterogeneity and lung protectiveness won't you know, resonate with you. And if you believe that proning is for lung protectiveness, then vice versa. And this is not academic. I'll give you an example. You have a patient who meets those criteria from Proceva, but you are able to oxygenate them without proning them. Whatever you're doing on the ventilator and other measures, they are oxygenating adequately, maybe with higher FiO2s and PEEPs and so on, but you can. A oxygenation person would say, why would I prone this patient? It is a burden on our staff. There are potential complications. You know, it's not the most dangerous thing in the world, but it can cause uh, pressure injuries, dislodgement of lines and tubes in the process, um, facial edema, ocular injury, things like that. Why do it if I don't need to? Whereas the lung protectiveness person would say, 
No, no. Regardless of whether you're able to oxygenate, that's not the point here. People don't die from ARDS due to hypoxemia, by and large. A minority do. You just, you can't oxygenate them. They get more and more hypoxic, and then eventually they have a cardiac arrest from that. That's the minority. What do they usually die of? Multi-organ failure. Probably driven by inflammation, just as with the majority of our patients who have things like sepsis. What kills them? Inflammation, you know, dysregulated organ function and tissue response from all these circulating cytokines and so on. If we can mitigate that, then we'll improve their outcome, regardless of the oxygenation issue. So from that perspective, any measure that is lung protective will improve their outcome, regardless of if you can oxygenate them. And of course, this dovetails better with the evidence-based approach, which is to say that you should just do it if they meet the criteria. And that makes a little more sense here, right? Yes, we can oxygenate them, whatever, but they're hypoxic enough that we're doing stuff to them that may promote lung injury. People end up on high airway pressures, high peeps, and so on, and it tends to encourage this cycle of doing more and more lung injurious stuff to oxygenate them, which worsens lung injury and, you know, multi-organ injury. And then they end up with worse hypoxia and worse organ injury until they do die. This pertains to when you should stop. Some people would say, well, you prone them and you don't see a big impact on oxygenation. Maybe they failed. Flip them back. Don't try again. They were not a responder. But that's, first of all, not what you would have done in Proceva, so it's not evidence-based. But also, maybe you are being lung protective regardless of whether you saw an impact on oxygenation. Let's say you couldn't oxygenate the patient and you put them on something like ECMO. Should you prone them now? An oxygenation person would say, why would I do that? I've cured the problem. I can make their oxygenation whatever I want using this membrane and pump. A lung protectiveness person would say, this person could still die of inflammation and multi-organ failure, and they do. Being on ECMO doesn't prevent you from dying. It just prevents you from dying of hypoxia. And therefore, maybe you should still prone them, even though they're on ECMO. And that is what some of the ECMO centers are doing. So there's two mindsets here, and to some extent you have to decide what you believe. But I hope you also recognize that one of these mindsets can be driven and dictated by bedside observations. If you think you're doing this for hypoxia, then you can do it when the patient's oxygenation demands it. You can stop it or manage it depending on how they're oxygenating. But if you're doing it for lung protectiveness, there is no immediate feedback on that. So you have to do it because you believe that it's good for the patient's outcome overall, even though you don't have a, a number on a screen measuring lung protectiveness, and you flip them and it goes up and you say, hey, it worked. It's not like that. The effect is going to be on a longer period and less specific, and it's just essentially going to mean that overall, if you're right, when you generally do this, patients generally have better outcomes. And I think you have to turn to data for that. There's no bedside observation that will bear that out. So this is a complex topic, uh, but I think it's worth thinking about, you know, what is your own mindset how do you think about proning? Because that will drive when you do it, how you do it, when you stop, uh, and of course, things like how you teach it and just how you conceive of it. And it is not purely academic. It does impact the practicalities of this intervention. So give it some thought, share your thoughts with me if you'd like, and I'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs>